Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. There has been a growing interest in the therapeutic benefits of psychedelic substances to treat things like depression. Now a first-of-its-kind study at the University of New Mexico and New York University found that psilocybin, often called magic mushrooms, can help decrease heavy drinking in those with alcohol use disorder when it's combined with psychotherapy. On this month's show, we delve into the study with one of the authors, Dr. Snehal Bhatt, Chief of Addiction Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. We also talk with Dr. Larry Lehman, Director of the Milagro Program at UNM and Professor of Family Medicine, about why psychedelics hold promise for treating addiction and underlying trauma. Dr. Bott came to UNM in 2009 for his fellowship, drawn by the work of Dr. Michael Bogenschutz, who was starting to research the role of psilocybin in treating addiction. So I think the fact that this was kind of this really potentially useful thing that hadn't been studied in decades was really going to be starting up here at the University of New Mexico was too good to pass up. And, you know, there's old data showing that psychedelics could potentially help individuals with alcoholism. So it really seemed like the right time uh, to start investigating this. So this paper is really, you know, (laughs) over a decade in the making. What about you, Dr. Lehman? My story is a little similar in the fact that um, I was working with Milagro, uh, working in addiction for, you know, over a decade. And, you know, I, I felt felt like we were being helpful for a lot of people. You know, we'd get people stabilized on uh, buprenorphine, for instance, or, you know, or methadone. But then I kept seeing people back in the next pregnancy. And I was feeling like, you know, I wasn't necessarily getting a long-term effect with a lot of people. Often it seemed that there were underlying issues, sometimes trauma, PTSD and such. And so I I embarked on doing a, um, a sabbatical in using psychedelic therapies for addiction and trauma. And um, in addition to psilocybin, that included um, MDMA for people with PTSD um, after childbirth. And I mean, our, our, the therapies we have help many people long acting, but we do see many people who, you know, we stabilize and they resume trying to get to the maybe some deeper parts. And Dr. Bott, your most recent study published is the Journal of the American Medical Association of Psychiatry offered impressive results in curtailing heavy drinking among participants. Can you say more about that? This study built upon a pilot study that was done here at the University of New Mexico published several years ago. And what that pilot study found was that it was safe. There were really no um, significant adverse effects. And we got this signal showing that this could really work. So that's really what led to this project starting to get designed. And that was way back in 2013, when we started getting all the regulatory approvals from the DEA and the FDA for this study that just got published. And this study, really the idea was to now recruit more people and also to randomize them to receive either psilocybin, which is the active treatment, or uh, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. And with a larger group of people and with this double-blind design, hopefully we can start to really get an efficacy. Does this work or not? There was a total of, you know, 90-odd participants. About half of them received psilocybin. Uh, The other half received Benadryl. That was the only thing that was different. And then we followed them. Once that treatment ended, the therapy ended at weeks 12, we followed them for about six six months afterwards without really any active treatment and looked at the outcomes at the end of those six months. Because one of the things we're interested in seeing is that, is there an improvement uh, with the psilocybin-assisted therapy compared to, you know, Benadryl? 
And does the treatment persist? That's really was some of the most kind of, I think, impressive outcomes we saw that one thing was that therapy itself seemed to be effective, right? So in the first four weeks where participants were just getting therapy before they got any medications, everyone reduced how much heavy drinking they were engaging in. On average, people were drinking heavily, which is defined as five or more drinks in men or four or more drinks in women, about half of days, right? So in a month, they were drinking that heavily at least 15 days out of the month. And at week four, just based on therapy, both groups had decreased their heavy drinking to about 25% of the days, so about quarter of the days. But then we saw this big difference emerge. So at the end of the 36 weeks, right, after six months of just follow-up, people who had received Benadryl, they were still engaging in heavy drinking about 25% of the day. So there was no further improvement. But the people who had received psilocybin had reduced their heavy drinking to under 10% of the days. Their heavy drinking days were over 80% reduced. Mm. Um, We also saw that people who received psilocybin were about twice as likely to be abstinent, which is, you know, pretty significant. And also importantly, there were really no serious adverse events as a result of the psilocybin. So, you know, it was kind of nice to be able to see that. I had a quick question. Why Benadryl? (laughs) Why was that the control drug? So I think the short answer is there is really no great way to control. That's actually one of the big methodological challenges when we're talking about giving half the people psilocybin, right? Or another psychedelic, which affects the psyche in a profound way. People have tried all kinds of different things, right? Benadryl really was chosen because that's what the UNM IRB uh, thought made the most sense. What Dr. Bob is emphasizing is that this is in the context of therapy and that because, you know, the headlines are always things like, you know, uh, psilocybin cures alcohol, but but we don't really think that's true. We actually think that what the psilocybin or other psychedelic therapies do is they present a way for the person to work with the therapy. And so we, we don't think if people like go into the park and do psilocybin by itself, we don't think that's going to help them actually hurt them, you know, as far as not having that therapy. And so everything we're talking about is on this idea of psychedelic assisted therapies. All of the participants had psychotherapy. How is that structured? Yeah, so psychotherapy was quite intense. And and again, for two reasons, I totally concur with Dr. Lehman that, you know, although you know, no studies have really empirically looked at, you know, how necessary psychotherapy is, I think most of us in the field, I certainly me, think that psychotherapy is an essential component to guide the process and also to ensure safety. So every participant, whether they were in the Benadryl group or the psilocybin group, got paired up with two therapists right? Uh, And they received two different types of therapy. So one type of therapy combined elements of motivational enhancement therapy with elements of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy uh, relapse prevention. So kind of this manualized therapy talking about what might be your triggers. You know, first of all, like, why do you want to stop drinking? Why do you want to make a change? How can we support you in that? And the other type of therapy uh, was what we call PSI, Uh, standing for Preparation Support Integration. Uh, And that was kind of the psychedelic therapy, preparing participants for whatever might come up during their medication session. Maybe it is that they just feel sleepy, but maybe what you get is this intense affect and intense, you know, visuals uh, or intense emotions. How do you interact with them? The S being the support, which is supporting them 
during the actual medication administration session where the two therapists that had worked with them would be with the participant for the entire eight-hour experience. And the integration would happen the day after the medication session where we would spend two hours talking about what came up, what was your experience like, what might it mean, how can you integrate that towards what your goals are, your aspirations are, your fears are, and really that open-ended process. I was curious how participants in the group that received psilocybin characterized their experience. There was quite a few things that came up. These were often intense experiences. They were not always pleasant experiences. I think one of the things that struck me and, you know, I was, I, I think, really privileged, honored enough to be a therapist for a number of these participants. And there was a lot of trauma, right? A lot of grief, a lot of feelings of having hurt someone, having hurt myself, that often came up in these sessions. So it wasn't always pleasant. At times, in fact, it was quite uncomfortable. At times, it was very joyous. So it really varied. The other thing that really strikes me is that alcohol was often the focus of the experiences, but not always. Many times, one of the things we found is that the experiences had to do with relationships, family, ancestors. Where do I come from? What is my connection to that place? And spirituality was something else that really came up for many participants. This sense of unity or, or feeling connected, you know, so not always alcohol, but quite intense and varied experiences. And I think that's really where the therapist training comes in. You know, in medicine, right, we're taught that discomfort is bad. And I know that if I'm with a participant who's shivering and you know, feeling really anxious, I can give that participant some medicine right now and take away that discomfort. But am I really helping that participant or am I not? And, and a lot of that was like the preparation, right? Setting boundaries, figuring out, you know, when we should intervene. And there are some memorable things that came up. For example, we had, you know, one participant who kind of felt suspended by strings of alcohol. And as they were slowly cut, you know, he sort of felt released from that, essentially. Hmm. Um, you know, we had many participants who felt this tremendous sense of connection to whatever community they came from or their ancestors and kind of feeling comforted by them. So, you know, so I think that was maybe the healing happening uh, with the process. Uh, you know, what Dr. Bob is talking about, though, is I think most of us are in the field think is so important, which are what happens during the therapy again. And, um, you know, a lot of people have, you know, spiritual feeling of connection to the world, but a lot of people just feel connected to people, to family, to friends, their community. And, you know, what, what most of us have seen in addiction is that addiction is sort of, it's sometimes described as the opposite of connection. You have this very narrowed uh, view. And so I think that that's a potential mechanism for its working. And one of the interesting things that we're starting to do with psychedelic studies is look at just what Dr. Bot says, you know, if they have a challenging experience, does that more likely, you know, lead to stopping addiction? If they have like emotional breakthroughs, they have mystical experiences and there's you know, we have questionnaires that look at each of those and hopefully give us some insights so we can not only know have the best psychedelic medicine, but, but the best therapy in the future. 
And Dr. Lehman, you have been doing some studies on the use of psilocybin and other psychedelics, as you mentioned, for use in addiction treatment and for PTSD and trauma. Why, why do you think they could be effective for those? Oh, sure. Well, maybe I can mention a little bit on MDMA because MDMA is probably going to be the first psychedelic-like drug that is illegal. And I was able to um, participate in MDMA studies at the University of Wisconsin. And um, Dr. Bott and I are working on doing a study here. So many people that have addiction have trauma at the root of it. So by working and using them versus MDMA, they found that after a 12-week course of intense trauma therapy in three sessions, that 70% of the people didn't meet the criteria for PTSD anymore compared to 30% of the people who you know had the therapy without the psychedelic without the MMDMA so and that also seems to be at least up to the six month and you know couple of year level long acting. And that's what I see so much in the population I work a lot with is postpartum women is that we treat the addiction, but that trauma is still there and it brings it back. So I think that you know, our, some of our hopes is to actually treat both trauma and addiction together. One of your papers and also Dr. Bott's study noted the role psychedelics play in neuronal plasticity. What do you mean by that? And a lot of this is still a theory I do want to kind of mention. We don't have hard proof of a lot of it, but the idea is that after someone has a psychedelic experience, there's things that are happening both on a almost like an anatomical level with the neurons, a neurochemical level, and also just a sort of receptiveness. And the idea would be after someone has that experience, they have more what we call psychological flexibility in that they have a more uh, ability to actually experience change. We think that that change is actually a affected in the level of the neurons. And we don't dissect the brains of our psychedelic subjects, but they have done that with mice. And with mice and with psilocybin, they've changed, seen actually changes that occurred, which are the sprouting of more connections that I hypothesize to be happening with uh, subjects and studies like the one Dr. Bott's done. And I think interestingly, you know, some of the studies that were done at Johns Hopkins, where they, you know, gave psilocybin to healthy participants. One of the things they noted is that even after several months after receiving psilocybin, their personality had shifted to where they were more open to new experiences or their thought processes were not as rigid. And that was not observed in their control group, which was you know, methylphenidate, which is Ritalin. It was really only observed in people who received psilocybin. You know, so maybe some similar processes are playing out where people are just right. And if you think about it, rigidity or rigid patterns of thinking is one of those, again, common themes that can cut across, you know, a variety of human conditions, psychiatric conditions, you know, however you want to phrase it. Um, so is that playing a role in it? I, I think it's an open question, but, but potentially. Dr. Lehman, you were one of the medical experts who testified earlier this year to lawmakers. There's a push to loosen the restrictions on these medications. What do you want to see happen? The legislation that's being discussed, and, and the New Mexico Psychedelic Society is the one who's presenting that, and I have talked with them, um, would be to allow psilocybin to be given for therapeutic reasons in a setting that has, you know, built in uh, safety, has people that have had training, they're not proposing, and I would be strongly opposing an idea of like psilocybin becoming legal, like medical marijuana and being sold out and people buying it. They're talking about making it available, you know, with therapists in a structured environment. But uh, just to be clear, you know, our role here at UNM, we're here as advisors. We feel like we have expertise in this area to the state. And we're happy to, you know, talk mm -hmm. with legislators or people um, about that. 
that, but we're not advocating, you know, one way or the other on this. We're just being uh, supportive with information. Right. I understand. You know, I already know several acquaintances who are doing this on their own, so-called microdosing, or teens who are struggling with mental health issues may see this as a solution to depression or other issues. Why could this be problematic? Oh, yeah. That's our most worrisome situation, really, that we, you know, have teens that don't have a support. They won't have any necessarily have preparation. They may not have somebody with them. Uh, they won't have someone they're integrating. And there have been, you know, rare, you know, tragedies that have happened in that situation. You know, the idea would be to create a way, whether it's through the FDA uh process, which is really what Dr. Bott and I are both working on, getting FDA approval for um, psilocybin and MDMA if they're shown to be beneficial, that there's that safety envelope. I would say that if there are people that are using that, and of course there are, I mean, there's been people that have been using these substances, that they don't use them alone, that they are getting, you know, therapeutic help, that they potentially have um, a therapist that they can see after their experience. That's called integration. That's actually something that psychotherapists, physicians, psychiatrists can legally do, which is to see somebody after their experience and be there for them. So if I had to make one call for safety there, I would be for having support there and to having a plan for integration. Mm. You know, and the second thing I add in just from, you know, just from a science standpoint, right, is that, you know, I think especially with like microdosing, I know it's extremely prevalent, right? I see it, you know, like you mentioned, I see it all the time and the data still isn't really there good quality data. At least from that standpoint, we're not there yet. And second, I think then this question has been raised, and it's a valid question, that we don't really know what the physiological, psychological effects might be of repeated low-dose administration of some of these substances. And, and I, I, I'm not saying that to be sort of raise alarm or, you know, get people mm-hmm. freaked out, but we, we just don't have that data. So it's sort of, there, there's nothing guiding that. And, and that concerns me. All the studies that have been happened of psilocybin, they're all based on people having one or two large dose sort of experiences, kind of a, a pivotal change type of an experience. And um, no one's actually studied the microdosing um, mm. on there. It's actually hard to study because of the current FDA guidelines that people can't be given psilocybin to take it at home. So that's one reason. But I would share the feeling that um, we're just not clear about whether there's you know, a benefit there. And I really hope that we can start studying it because there are, I would hazard to guess, you know, hundreds of thousands of people of what I keep hearing in the media that are mm-hmm. using microdosing. And so hopefully we can come up with a way to study that. What plans do you both have for additional study in the future? You know, so I think even with this study, as I mentioned earlier, we haven't looked at all the data. We've looked at some, and there is actually some more quite important data that we're already starting to find. Um, So I think we're going to be doing a series of sort of secondary publications. They're really going to delve into some of the subjective experiences, right? As you mentioned, for both the participants, but also for the therapists, and also kind of starting to get at some of the mechanisms of change. Right. Is it neuroplasticity, as you mentioned? Is it toning down of the default mode network, for example, which is something that's been studied a lot? Is it things like Dr. Lehman mentioned? Is it things like these pivotal states or challenging experience or emotional breakthroughs? What's the role of therapy? So start to answer some of these mechanism questions. Beyond it, because the results were, I mean, you never know, right? When you started, we don't know how it was going to turn out. But because of the way the results turned out, 
of larger studies already in the works, and UNM will be a site for that, and hopefully we'll start sometime next year with up to 10 different sites around the country. The design may be a slightly different based upon what we found this time, but, but a similar idea. We're also right now um, in the process of um, trying to actually get federal funding, which, is, which has been rare up until this time, to use a similar model of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for other substance use disorders that affect us here in New Mexico, namely methamphetamine. And the other thing that I think you know, we want to really focus on, because I think this is something important that New Mexico can and must contribute, is to ensure that there is equity as this moves forward, that there is important attention paid to things like indigenous populations and history of colonization and how does this interact with historical traumas, right? Uh, In addition to kind of making sure practical things like therapists are coming from a variety of backgrounds and participants are coming from a variety of backgrounds, but to really start to open that discussion at the very least, right? It may not be in a study form, but we really want to ensure that that discussion happens. And I know, Dr. Lehman, you've got some exciting stuff coming up. We recently got FDA approval for um, a study that's still in the planning stages, but it's for using MDMA in women six to 12 months after they've had childbirth who have both PTSD and opioid use disorder. And what we want to do there is we want to look at how does treating the PTSD um, affect their chance of resuming use because it's such a critical time. But we're also interested in looking at how does that affect parenting? You know, we're we're aware that the way that trauma can affect maternal infant bonding and attachment. So that gets into the area that is being described as intergenerational trauma, the way that gets passed at adverse childhood experiences get passed on to their. So we're really excited about that and using MDMA there. There's um, another study that's really actually in, still in the discussion phase, but I, I really want to mention it because it fits in with what Dr. Bott mentioned, which is potentially working with a population such as the Native American population that has gone through colonization, has a lot of trauma issues. And so, but it's such a delicate area working there. So what we're actually have done right now, we have a working with a Native advisory group to kind of really talk about what's the best way to do that. To me, the major problem right now is polysubstance use with fentanyl and methamphetamine. So we have a study that we just submitted to look at uh, ketamine. Ketamine is um, a psychedelic-like substance that has the advantage of being uh, legally available. So if you can demonstrate benefit from that, it doesn't need to go through like a 10-year FDA process. It could actually be used sooner. So we're hoping that we get approval for that particular population that uses those two substances because there's real nothing out there pharmacologically to to help. The last thing, if I can, one one more thing, Mm -hmm. again, fits in with just what Dr. Baum mentioned about access and um, culture is that I'm hoping that we can be on the forefront of looking at how to use these substances in groups. Um, To me, like groups, especially in the populations we work with in addiction, there's potential that by working in a group setting, not only can it be more economical, not only can it be more accessible, but actually, you may actually help with that that idea of connectedness. And I, I had the experience of working with an addiction center in Arizona that uses ketamine with addiction. I was very impressed. It's not been written up you know, as a study, but just my observations of ketamine being used in a group setting. And so I'm hoping at some point we get a chance to pilot that here. Thank you both for talking with me today. This is really interesting. Thank you so much for, yeah, for having yeah, us. Thanks for your interest, Megan. 
That was Dr. Snehal Bott, Chief of Addiction Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, and Dr. Larry Lehman, Director of the Milagro Program at UNM and Professor of Family Medicine. You can find this and all our episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. This is University Showcase. Showcase.